Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight in uh, our satsang, I want to explain because this concept is coming up often. It is a very definitory concept in the spiritual evolution. It's coming up often in the metaphysics of India and Tibet. And a lot of conclusions which are drawn about the world in which we live are actually drawn exactly depending on this concept. Not understanding this concept will mean not understanding a lot of other things in spirituality. So tonight I'm going to talk to you about the concept of yuga, the so-called cosmic cycles, which comes of course from a cyclic understanding of history, that although the history does not repeat itself, it is exactly like you see in Truman's show, because we live in a Maya, and that Maya is limited to a certain extent, then the Maya keeps repeating a certain pattern. It's exactly like you have a carpet, or like you have tiles on the wall in your bathroom, and those tiles keep repeating a monotonous pattern, and yet when you look at the surface of many carpets or of many tiles, it sounds like a huge surface, but it's actually just one pattern repeating itself. Exactly in the same way, the, first of all, the Hindu, the Vedic gurus, looking at nature and applying the principle as above, so below, like everything is somehow resembling to everything, everything is somehow similar to everything. So looking at it in that way, then they simply said, exactly as we have a day, and every day we're having morning and noon and evening and night, and of course they can depend on the seasons in which we are, but roughly they will pretty much look the same. There are some general characteristics. Exactly as we have a year, and every year we have spring and summer and autumn and winter. Again, in India it was slightly different, but as a matter of principle it's the same thing. Then, it means that in the levels of history of this universe, we have a repetition of this pattern. Everything is a similarity of this pattern. Can we divide, for example, the year in six instead of four? In Europe, we say spring, summer, autumn, and uh, winter. In India, they divide it according to Svadhisthana Chakra, the six spokes of Svadhisthana Chakra, and they define six seasons. In Thailand, there exist three seasons. So, of course, according to the criteria which we use, we can divide the day and the year and everything else into a number. But the number four has always been traditional for describing the things of the earth. Because the number four, like you have in yantras, a gate with uh, a square with four gates and so on. Always number four, the cross of the elements, is like it's describing the most basic thing which happens down here on earth. Is the number of spokes of Muladhara Chakra, and four is the number which defines very beautifully what's happening on this earth. And according to this, therefore, they divided the day in four, the seasons of the year in four, a lot of things in four quarters. Four quarters, exactly as you'd look at the dial of a clock, 
and you divide it in four quarters. As you'd have a circle and divide it in four quarters, as it is still done in astrology. For example, where the astrological circle is divided in four quarters by the axis, the vertical axis and the horizontal axis. And the, the list of examples could continue. Of course, this cyclic type of history does not mean that everything repeats identically. But it is as a great guru once said. He said, look at this sunset because it's not going to be repeated. Then he thought a little bit and he said, except perhaps after about 25,000 years. Because after a certain cycle, if a day, the day of today, would repeat itself identically tomorrow or next week, some observant people, and then next week again, then some people would say, what the heck? Something is running in a loop. If it's repeating itself after 25,000 years, you won't see it. Because you'll never live that long to see the repetition of it. It's like a cycle big enough, created by Mother Nature, so that this loop, this video loop which exists there, we don't see it anymore. It's big enough to cover the lives of people, even if people live like Matushalem or whatever his name was, even if people like the, live like the Egyptian pharaohs a thousand years, still they will not be able to see through a loop this big. So there exists therefore this theory that the background energy may repeat itself. Some astrological conjunctions and functions they will repeat themselves, and the list could continue. And why is this repetition? We simply, because we live in a circular system, we live in a solar system, the planets, the earth itself are all moving on orbits, and ultimately the whole solar system is like a clockwork. It's like a machinery with circles, with wheels. Those wheels, sooner or later, they will have to create a periodicity. There can be a period which is the multiplication of the numbers of all of them, and still there will be a periodicity of what is happening. That's why um, the Hindus have this cyclic history uh, theory, but remember at the same time, this doesn't mean that this is valid for the individual soul. This means that that's what's happening, like for example, when you have the cycle of a year, and now it's spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Next spring, a farmer is planting new seeds, like his corn, but the spring which he is planting next spring is not the same corn which he, which he planted last spring. The corn is different. It's still corn. But strictly speaking, there are other grains of corn. So if the grain of corn is your soul, your individuality, your individual signature, that signature is not repeated. That means when the cycle is over and it starts, you're not like a rat running in a circle and you are back to step one and basically nothing of what you've done in those 20,000 years had any effect. It doesn't work that way. That's why some people who want to be more scrupulous, they would say these cosmic cycles of the cyclic history, they are more like spirals, like you come back in the same place, but not on the same level. So you are spiraling because there is an evolution. And of course, every soul, cycle after cycle, finds itself in another place. Not necessarily better, 
because better is a relative term, we can say further on the curve of evolution. To go further on the curve of evolution, it can mean also that you are doing some major mistakes and you go to hell for 60,000 years. If you go to hell for 60,000 years, then you'll catch two cycles in hell and then you'll come back and get out of hell and start doing other things. Therefore, compared to the cycle where you're not in hell, if the next cycle exactly after 25,000 years or so, you are, you are in hell. So, relatively speaking, you are worse, not better off. But in the terms of evolution, even going to hell is a lesson from which you are going to learn something. It's a very bitter and painful lesson. And from that lesson, something good will come in the future. And that's why, strictly speaking, as evolution, even if you are worse in your status, nevertheless, it's okay from the standpoint of the cosmic consciousness because you are learning, you are evolving, you are accumulating knowledge. That's why, take it with a pinch of salt when we speak about a cyclic history. It simply says that exactly as in a school, the trimesters, the semesters, the days of study are repeating monotonously, and, but you as a student going through school, you can say it's again September 1st or September 15 or whatever is in your country, and then you say, I have to go to school again. It's the beginning of the school year. It's the first day of school. And, but you are not in the fourth grade. You are in the fifth grade. So something different is going to happen for you, strictly speaking. However, the school has to keep the same rhythm. The planet Earth is a gigantic school for souls. So it just runs in cycles. It runs a timetable which goes in, in cycles. And the pupils on this planet, they fit into those cycles. That's the theory of the cyclic history, that although the soul is moving from mineral to Buddha, from atom to nirvana, nevertheless the soul, when it goes, when it incarnates in a world, if that world is a cyclic planet like the Earth, that means works in orbit with planets and all that, then automatically it's compulsory mathematically that somewhere all these cogged wheels of astronomy they will end by producing simply that. They will end by producing uh, major cycles. Well, those cycles, actually the problem in Hinduism is that the Hindus and the Tibetans and the Chinese, but the Hindus have gone furthest with this, they have identified so many cycles. Like every Kumbha Mela is kept at a cycle of 12 years. Kumbha Mela returns every 12 years. 12 years is similar with the Chinese calendar. So there must be something. There must happen something in 12 years. We are told about some 12 years thing. And 12 years, astronomically, is with good approximation, the cycle of rotation of Jupiter. Jupiter spends approximately one year in every astrological sign, and in 12 years it makes a complete astronomical cycle through the zodiac. And therefore, we can always inquire if the 12-year cycle is strictly related with Jupiter or not. But for example, in India, when they calculate when should Kumbamela be, Kumbamela always is judged, one of the factors is Jupiter. 
It's depending on some transits of Jupiter in some astrological signs according to some stars and positions. And therefore, here is a cycle which we don't take too much into account. But hey, let's compare it with modern science. Modern science also has some cycles which are not validated as such in the old traditions. For example, the sun, the sunspots, are having a cycle of 11 years. Nobody, I have not seen anywhere defined in any metaphysical system a cycle of 11 years. It has some effects, but the ancient ones couldn't explain it. They didn't localize it. There is no tradition which defines cycles of 11 years. There are traditions which define cycles of 7 years, for example. That in 7 years, some things are happening. 12 years. Then the Chinese uh, calendar is going in defining the 12 years of the Chinese horoscope multiplied by the five elements because it's not enough to be a tiger. It also means it matters if you are a water tiger or a metal tiger or an earth tiger. So therefore, the 12-year cycle gets multiplied by five and this results in the major cycle of 60 years which we are catching about once in a lifetime, maximum of some of them two times. A 60-year calendar in which each one of those 60 years has a special meaning. Very soon, in a couple of weeks less than that, we are going to go in the year of the goat. It, we are going to change. It's the Chinese New Year on the Mahashivaratri as well. And we are going to go into a new Chinese year. So, but that's part of a 12-year and it's part of a 60-year cycle. And actually, both Chinese astrologers and Tibetan astrologers, they say those 16-year cycles are each one of them dominated by one of the seven visible planets. And therefore, they are not 60 years. They are 60 multiplied by 7. Actually, the years are unique in a 420 years. So you may see some patterns coming back every 12 years. You may see some patterns coming back every 60 years. You won't see, but if you study history, you might see some interesting patterns coming back every 420 years, including the fact that Tibetan astrologers believe that for normal people, 420 years is the natural cycle for reincarnation, for the reincarnation of the soul. Like every soul, exception made of some highly advanced and highly cursed souls, they, they tend to incarnate at a sabai-sabai, relaxed, cool, chilled out frequency of about 420 years. Whatever is happening faster or slower than that, are exceptions produced by exceptional conditions. And of course, there exist plenty of exceptions. But these are not the only cycles. Then there are lunar cycles, much smaller, cycles of 29 days. Every 29 days, we are hit by the full moon. And the full moon produces certain effects, which are, again, undoubtable, although not fully explainable. So in this way, I'm just trying to show to you that scientifically, such as sunspots and others, astronomically, astrologically, and in other ways, there are other ways, and again, I don't want to go there because otherwise we'll speak the whole evening only about generalities, and that's not the point. Then there exist many, many cycles, even with the story um, of the yugas, there are many, many confusions because Hindus, had an inclination towards Vishuddha Chakra, 
as you know, it's not only the British which are or were great Puritanists in history. The Hindus are more Puritanic than the British. They took it from the British and they became more squeamish and more square-toed than the British. That's because in the Hindu soul, there exists a certain amount of Puritanism coming from Vishuddha Chakra. You have all these Jnani Yogis, all these people who want to be sattvic and not to touch dirt and to stay away from everything impure. And automatically, in this environment, therefore, there comes a tendency towards Vishuddha. And in this Vishuddha tendency in India, one of the ways they went was of going into big numbers of showing you how big is the universal time, how big is the universe, how big are different things, so that you feel squashed, so that your ego feels completely compressed as an ant. In Europe, Christian religion has established a pattern that people surpass their ego, which usually manifests on Manipura Chakra. The ego is a very German general term, and it can mean many things. But the ego, ego, the real egocentric, selfish person is usually a knot of energy on Manipura Chakra. There exists an ego on Zvadhisthana, but it's very animalistic and primitive. It's very instinctual type of ego. And there exists an ego on Muladhara, but that's like the ego of a rainworm or something like that. That's really primitive. So the ego that we talk about generally, it's the ego on Manipura. And Christianity, for example, has gone like we have to surpass the ego from Manipura with the selflessness from Anahata. Like the natural cure for surpassing ego is going in Anahata. In India, they have tried many other formulas and recipes for this. And one of them was that you can surpass your ego from Manipura by going in Vishuddha, which is a sort of a complementary to Manipura. And how is Vishuddha going to surpass your ego? By simply showing you how small and insignificant you are in this universe. Like if the universe is evolving in cycles of 342 billion years, then your life is smaller than a grain of sand. And either you build Eiffel Towers, or you do what Mother Teresa did, or it, at the scale of the Cosmic history means nothing. Like in a day of Brahma, you cannot see. The whole history of the planet Earth is a trinket. You know, and whatever humanity did or didn't do in a million years or something is kind of insignificantly small. And therefore, when you say like this, then somebody is telling you, chill out. Stop taking vendettas on your neighbors and shit like this because it means nothing. You are nothing anyway. You are so small, it doesn't mean anything. So, you know, it's like stop, think, stop taking yourself so seriously because there is nothing serious about it. You are insignificantly small taken from this standpoint. And thus, uh, because of this Indian theory of yugas, goes really, really big. There is the story which I said at an earlier stage with Indra, the king of gods, the equivalent of Jupiter from the Roman mythology. And Indra is going megalomanic and wants more palaces, more power, more show off. And then Shiva and Vishnu appear in disguise, appear under different forms in his palace and they show him how small he is. One of them sees a row of ants 
and he laughs, and eventually when asked, says, each one of these ants has been an Indra in some previous universe. There are like tens of thousands of ants. And Shiva was having a bald spot on the hair of his chest, and he said, oh, it's nothing. Every time when an Indra passes away, a hair of my chest falls off. And he looks at his chest, and he says, by now about half have fallen off, you know. Like, why is this? To show to Indra how small he is and all his palaces and all his things is just the megalomania of a little ant, of someone who is not really important at the universal scale. And therefore, because of this, the Hindus have played very much with extremely large numbers and extremely low numbers to show the microcosm and the macrocosm in mathematical extravagant ways. And that's why the Hindus, for example, speak about a yuga, a maha-yuga, which is the day of Brahma. And the day of Brahma is 342 billion years. And if somebody cuts it in four or something and says, oh, in this day of Brahma, uh, there is about 100 billion years or 80 billion years, which is Kali-yuga. Like, who the heck cares? Because it means Kali Yuga started before the creation of the sun and of our solar system. And it's going to end after the death of the sun and of the solar system. Like who cares? Such a cosmic cycle will make absolutely no difference for anybody. You know, because it's, it's so gigantic. That's why I want to call your attention, especially those of you who are in touch with Indian mysticism and metaphysics that there exist many, many misunderstandings and many confusions which are coming because the Hindu mystics, they juggled with many such cycles. But of, and of course, they make sense, but they don't make sense for human beings in the immediate things of their life. That's why when I'm talking to you about cosmic cycles... I'm not, of course, it would be very interesting to study the cycles of the moon, the cycles of the sun, the energy of each astrological sign, the cycles of Jupiter, the transits of Saturn, and a lot of other important things, the positions of Mercury, when does Mercury go retrograde, and when Mars is doing this or Venus is doing that. These are very thrilling things. We're not going to do them here. You study them here in Agama when you study a bit of Svara Yoga, and you study them when you go to our workshops on astrology. That's where we deal with these things. There is, however, one such cyclicity, which is considered to be very important. It's a bit bigger than the human life. Like it, We can look at it only in a historical perspective, but it is very relevant because yogis of India and Tibet, and not only, many mystics as well, they comment on this. They use this as an argument. They use this as an explanation for some things that did happen in the past and for some things which are happening right now in our life. And that is why I will have to inform you about this cycle Remember, I've seen many misunderstandings, uh, even some of the great yogis of India, sometimes they applied convoluted astrological systems and they did not connect with the most basic things, which is down to earth. And remember always this measure, as above, so below. Like things have to be similar, they have to resemble. A lot of things re resemble with a lot of things. And that's the law of the universe. This being said, 
the most important cycle of a yuga is a cycle which corresponds to a precise astronomical phenomenon. In the old days, very often they said that it's about 24,000 years. Well, they described it like 24,000 years and a bit. And when you multiply, and then they said that there is a line of 14 such cycles. That would mean the seven chakras up and down. There's a whole story in the Vedic mythology with seven chakras designating paradises and seven chakras designating the underworlds or the hells, the infernos, and that makes a, a line of 14 lokas. And according to these 14 lokas, then automatically there exists also, there's a modulation times 14. If you'll have the curiosity to multiply 24,000 and something with 14, you are going to get to the number of 342,000 years, which is called a Maha Yuga, a cycle of 14 Yugas, and that's already bigger. Then that one multiplied with a thousand and again with a thousand, it gives 342 billion years, which is the day of Brahma. And a thousand days of Brahma, which means 342 trillion years, make a day of Vishnu. What for Vishnu is a day, for the universe is 342 trillion years. That's just to show you approximately where you are placed in report to Vishnu. Like what's the ratio between your events and Vishnu's events. No? It's, a, it's a way of, of getting humbled in front of the greatness and saying, okay, you know, it's like, I've got to grow up a lot, you know, it's like what I do doesn't really make much difference for Vishnu anyway. So, coming back to our story, the basic unit of this is a mysterious cycle of about 24,000 years, when research has been done by astronomers, astrologers, they actually found out that this cycle is related with the precession of the equinoxes. Because besides the many, many cycles which we see, there exists a cycle which is more difficult to see, and that's because the axis of the earth wobbles. Like when you spin a top, uh, one of these toys for kids, then it sometimes goes like this. Exactly in the same way, the axis of the earth spins like this while it goes around the sun, and it spins very slowly. So a whole spin takes around 25,000 years. That was considered as a cycle, and it is reflected by the fact that because of this spinning, actually some cosmic axes, such as the equator and the ecliptic in astronomy, for those of you who know astronomy, they keep sliding on each other, so that the vernal point, which is like the point where the equinox occurs, as projected against the stars, is slowly moving. That's what produces, by the way, the basic difference between Western astrology and Vedic astrology. Vedic astrology keeps focusing on the stars, and Western astrology keeps focusing on the vernal point as the zero degree in Aries, and those two points are going away from each other. Apparently, they were together 2,300 years, which is very significant, because 2,300 years ago, there is a major event which connected the West with the East. And that event is called Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered a bit of India. 
and his philosophers and astrologers and whatever met with Indian astrologers and philosophers. And then they looked at the sky together and they decided upon a common point for their systems. But then the Greeks went back home and each one of them followed a different referential system. And the two forms of astrology, they started sliding away from each other until today, 2,300 years, 2,400 years would be approximately one-twelfth of that big cycle of 2,500, 868, which I wrote there. And that simply means that soon we are going to go to a point where the Vedic astrology and the Hindu astrology have gone 30 degrees from each other, which is exactly the breadth of an astrological sign. Like they are going soon to be one full astrological sign different from each other, like there is a glitch. That's because of a difference in the starting point, in defining the zero point. And um, if you'll come to the astrology workshop, we'll not focus on that too much, but just for avoiding your confusion, I'm going to explain there a little bit the theory of this to show to you that actually both systems works, but because they use different referential systems, each one of them has its strong parts and its weak parts. I don't want to go in details of this, but this is very, very important for another reason. Some people think that when, as we go through these yugas, they heard about it in some magazine or in some book, because it's about like, oh, we finished the age of the Pisces, and very soon we are going to go to the Aquarian age. This is related exactly with this precession of the equinoxes, but it has no connection with the yugas, as mentioned in the Indian tradition. It is synchronized with it, but it is, this is an invention brought by astronomers and astrologers, especially in the last hundred years, and this is one of the major tenets of the so-called New Age movement. The New Age movement simply says uh, 2,300 2, years have passed or something, and we are going to go into the next astrological sign as far as the browsing backwards of this vernal point goes. It has crossed through the Pisces, back, 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 and now it goes to Aquarius. And unfortunately, this kind of information is used by the anti-Christians, by the secret societies which are anti-Christian, to say, actually, we can see very clearly that the time of Jesus Christ is gone. Fuck Jesus, now we are going to the Aquarian time, where people will be able to go around and do stupid things, and smoke joints of marijuana, and show their ass in public, because it's Aquarius, and Aquarians are playful and crazy, and it's the time of Aquarius, and therefore we can do whatever we want, and fuck the Christian church, because uh, they were so tight, and so moral, and so ethical, and so puritanic, and so on. Okay, maybe that was acceptable, because it was the time of the pipe, but now finally we can breathe the time of Aquarius is coming. You know, This is nonsense. This is pure nonsense to justify a form of libertinism and to justify the destruction of the old idols, to justify a sort of iconoclastic attitude which some of these modern New Age people have simply trying to promote an agenda which is profoundly chaotic. If you want to read more about this, take a book like Michael Howard's The Aquarian Conspiracy, and you are going to see that all this New Age 
nonsense, which I find people totally brainwashed with it, all this New Age nonsense is actually inspired 100% by medieval secret societies, which were all of them anti-Christian, and therefore there is a political agenda and a lot of things into it. And um, I'm not going there. Again, this doesn't uh, matter too much here. What I'm trying to say is... um, Sometimes people, when they speak about yugas and you tell them a new yuga would come, they say, oh, it's the Aquarian Age. No, this so-called Aquarian Age is not one of the yugas of the Hindu tradition. And uh, it's just a speculation, again, based on some astronomical things there. I could go into more details, but I don't see the need why. Uh, in time, if those of you who have questions can ask me in the, our Q&A sessions and so on, and I can clarify more if need should be. Until then, let's go and see how the theory is. The theory says that this precession of the equinoxes, this wobbling movement of the earth, which makes the heavens wobble in a funny way, and which is very slow, which makes that the pole star is different, for example, the polar star, which today we call Polaris, and which is, which is in Ursa Minor, this pole star was not the same for the Earth 12,000 years ago. 12,000 years ago, the pole star was far from this one, which we have now, many, many degrees on the sky far, and that's because the axis of the Earth doesn't point to the same place, it just wobbles in a circle, and thus the pole star has changed and therefore, a lot of spiritual things, because the pole star is like the mid-heaven. It's like everything spins around the pole star. But if it was another star, then automatically many, many astronomical and astrological things are changed. So this being said, we are told that this cycle of about 25,000 years is very significant. Now again, none of you is going probably to live more than 26,000 years, so you'll be able to evaluate two such cycles. Therefore, here we can analyze these things only historically, but believe me, what this theory of these cycles is not pure speculation, in the meaning that it teaches us something about history, and it teaches us something about what we have to do now, because it localizes us in cycles of time which are relevant. This major cycle of 26,000 years is divided in four, like the quarters of a circle, like the quarters of a dial of a clock. And these four cycles are called by very significant names. The Hindu tradition calls the first quarter, I represented there the four slices. I I could have made the drawing as a circle, but I didn't have enough space on the board. It's just for you to have a visual thing, because something will come I'll tell you immediately why, uh, what exactly the commentary on that drawing is. And this, the first of the quarters, which is equivalent to spring. It always starts with spring. The astrological year starts at the spring equinox, when the sun goes zero degree in Aries, the first astrological sign. So the beginning of the astrological year is around 21st of March, and that spring is coming. It's the beginning of the astronomical spring. In a similar way, there is the beginning of the yuga, of the cosmic year, is in the beginning of the cosmic spring. The cosmic spring has been called in India Satya Yuga, 
Remember the word is yuga, not yoga. It's close, but it's not at all the same. Satya yuga, and satya means truthfulness, as you know. And it's therefore a sort of a divine age, because satya is one of the names of God. God is shivam satyam sundaram. God is truthfulness. And therefore, satya yuga is the divine age. And the Greeks, who spoke about the same thing, like the Greek historians quote this theory, they've heard about it. And they say it is said that humanity goes like this and like this. Then this is called by the Greeks the golden age. The Greeks divided, and that's how the medals are given in sports and Olympic games until today, by the three most precious common metals of their day, as gold, silver, and bronze. And therefore, as we have the gold medal, the silver medal, and the bronze medal, we have the gold age, the golden age. This golden age, if you divide the cycle, which astronomically today, the most precise date, the most precise measurement seems to be this one, 25,868. This will be the correct astronomical modern instrument evaluation of this cycle. Uh, even that, even scientists cannot agree. And you are going to find numbers which are with 40, 50, 60 years plus minus from this number. It doesn't matter very much at the big scale when you zoom back the camera and look. The principle is the same. And therefore, if you divide 25,800 years in quarters, this brings you to approximately 6,400 years. So we are talking about yugas, divisions of history, quarters of history, which are around 6,000 years, 6,400 years if you go by modern astronomy. And therefore, the Indian philosophy is uh, also carried on by the Tibetans and many others. They speak about all of them, and I'm going to try to define, I have a list of characters which I'm going to try to fit with you. First of all, the first cycle, spring, is called in India Satya Yuga. It's called by the Greeks the Golden Age of Humanity which says there once there was once upon a time a golden age this golden age if you want to see a little bit how it is defined by hindu texts and not only this beginning golden age says things like follows human beings in the golden age were between 4 to 6 meters tall like they compared to us, they were giants. That's why there exists the syntagm used by gurus from modern India about the people from Kali Yuga as being pygmies, comparing us with the pygmies of Africa, of course. Like short, short-lived and small in spirit. The Hindus, when they describe, when they discover great spirits, they call them Mahatma like Mahatma Gandhi, right? A great soul. And they say they are no more great soul. They are egoistic, materialistic, demonic little souls who look up their own belly button and they just follow their own personal interest all day long. And great souls to live for God, to live for an ideal, it's very seldom to find those great souls because they are not getting incarnated nowadays since we are not in Satya Yuga. Satya Yuga, which is purported to have happened about 20,000 years ago, 
It happens, therefore, during the glacier time of Europe, about 15,000 years, that there was ice in Europe. There was a small glacier era. And um, the Greeks, for example, when they speak about those people, they say those people were blonde with blue eyes. That follows the Hindu tradition, which says, once upon a time, we Hindus were white-skinned, blonde people coming from the north someplace. And this is the famous and infamous concept of Aryanism, that the first race characteristic to the Satya Yuga were the Aryans. So this is a, something which started in the north, in the far north. Uh, Herodotus, or the other guy, one of the great historians of India, I don't know why I forgot which one of them writes about this subject. It's relatively easy to find scholarly who writes about this. He calls this northern civilization, he calls it Hyperborea, because Boreas was the name of the north wind. And as you go north from Greece, it gets colder and colder. But they say, if you have patience and you go north enough, then you go to a very miraculous point, which is like Shambhala, which is like Shangri-La, which is like a sort of a oasis in the middle of frost and ice. And there the climate is temperate and it's an eternal spring. And that's where they live, the Hyperboreans. Hyperboreans means, therefore, some extremely northern people, but who don't live in ice, paradoxically, who live in a sort of microclimate. Many people have speculated if this microclimate was a spiritual bubble created by meditation, like Shangri-La, like an outpost of Shambhala, or if there were indeed some exceptional climate conditions, or if these people are not talking maybe about the hollow earth, that if you go north, 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 you are passing a certain level, and then suddenly it starts being warm again, and there is a microclimate. I'm not going to go into all those details. Basically, the theory is that this cosmic cycle study started about 25,000 years ago or 24,000 years ago with some northern people, Aryans, blonde with blue eyes, tall, four to six meters, living about a thousand years of life, like the kings of the Old Testament and like the pharaohs of the first dynasties of Egypt. And uh, a lot of things are said. These people were not more than 100, 150,000 people. Like it was a very not numerous civilization. Yogis, when they speak about this in Vishnu Purana, in Linga Purana, in Mahanirvana Tantra, they say these people were so advanced spiritually that if they closed their eyes, they would go automatically in Samadhi. If you close your eyes now, if you are not very, very stressed out and very disturbed in your brain, you start going into alpha waves. That's what closing the eyes does for a human being. Very soon, your brain starts producing a bigger amount of alpha waves. For the people from Hyperborea, Satya Yuga, it produced Samadhi, which simply says these people are described like 100,000 incarnations of deities, masters from Shambhala who came on a visit, on a picnic to the earth, and other such things, like these people were very few and considered to be living gods. Also, another interesting thing, which is way older than the Christian traditions, 
is that the Hindu Vedic traditions say that these people did not need physical sex, that they were of a frequency of vibration similar with that of angels or deities, and because of this, physical sex would have been a sort of animalistic action. And because of this, they never resorted to physical sex. They were basically celibate, virgin. And if they wanted to procreate, which did happen, it was done through looking in each other's eyes. Like they said that a woman could get pregnant by just focusing on the third eye and looking in the eyes of her men and both of them visualizing, programming the progeny that they were going to have. And the next day, the woman was pregnant like Jesus, yes, like Virgin Mary, from the Holy Spirit. Again, many people would say, Swami, do you really believe these things or you tell them to us as just mythology and for the fun of it? Actually, even modern science has demonstrated that in certain situations, different species and even mammals, advanced mammals, they can start becoming fertile without the participation of a physical male force. For example, experiments which are pretty questionable morally and ethically and which are theoretically forbidden, they have shown that if an egg is about to be fertilized, an ovum, an egg cell, it can sometimes start the partogenesis, it can start the cellular division if you just prick it with a microscopic needle. Just by pricking it, it will have effect as if a sperm cell would have gone through its defenses and fertilized it. But it doesn't have the DNA of the sperm cell it only can use its own DNA, so then it self-replicates. It's known in the case of many animal species that if the males are destroyed by some accidental event, some females can self-fertilize themselves and restart the species, like they don't really need the male for fertilization, and therefore it's possible for a woman, theoretically from what we know in science today, to even produce a pregnancy by other factors than a sperm cell. That's why the theory is not as absurd as it sounds, as about the fact that people lived a long time. We find that in Indian ancient documents, we find that on the Egyptian papyruses, that the first dynasty of the Egyptian dynasties, the first dynasty of kings, of pharaohs of Egypt, they lived about a thousand years each. And we find that in the Bible, where not only that the great prophets of God, the Jewish prophets, Noah and Matushalem and so on, they lived 600, 700, 800, 900 something years, but we are also told that when Noah built his legendary ark, on the face of the earth there were a lot of giants. And these giants, which we are not told more about who they were or where they came from, they had become very dominant, very terroristic, very bad, and they were having sex with the daughters of men, and blah, blah, and blah, blah. Like we are told a few groovy stories about some mysterious giants, and we are told stories about people who lived a lot of time. So there are some very disturbing evidences. Forbidden archaeology conspiracists, conspiracy theorists, they show us footprints in archaeological layers, in layers, in geological layers, which are at the same time with the dinosaurs. Like there are footprints of dinosaurs, and two meters further, there is a footprint of a human being. Only that the footprint of the human being is about 50-something centimeters long. Like it's really big. And if you make a proportionality, like how tall would be a person that has this, that person comes to be about five meters tall. Therefore, there are many, many evidences which makes 
Take it with a pinch of salt. There is no scientific demonstration about many of these things, but there are many, many question marks because there are too many references from wildly different traditions about some of these things, and therefore it may be that we don't know something. Many people say, is it possible that we don't know something which happened just 25,000 years ago? History is very, very complex. There is a Russian Academy member who is not a New Age hippie, like generally Russian science is very solid, it's very, you know, ex-communistic science, so very rigid, not dabbling into nonsense. And this guy with astronomical measures, with carbon dating and with everything, claims that the known human history is not older than 1,500 years. Like, he claims and he demonstrates, he has books, there's about eight books written on it, he demonstrates that Jesus lived just about a thousand something years ago. That even this thing that we are 2,000 years from Jesus, is just a historical nonsense where people messed up completely because they were incapable to calculate calendars properly. And he gives some pretty squashing evidence. Like he's a high-level scientist who got convinced of this and he gets corroboration over corroboration with comets with different astronomical events which happened and he can corroborate everything with everything. That's why I'm saying we are not sure about what happened 2,000 years ago. What happened 20-something thousand years ago, people say would have some, uh, would have some uh, traces. We wouldn't. If these people, these 100,000 demigods from Satya Yuga if they did not pursue any technical thing, like if they didn't have mobile telephones and antennas for mobile telephones, then it's hard to find any archaeological evidence about it. And then we can ask ourselves, wait a second, but if we are now with whatever we are, a technological age, then there must have been something like this, as you say, 26,000 years ago. Why didn't those guys live? Like if you build the pyramids of Egypt, they are supposed to last at least 26,000 years, so would find some traces from some pre-technical civilization. Yes or no, there are so many theories about this, and there are some reasonable explanations. I don't like phantasmagoric explanations. When I hear reasonable explanations, I shrug my shoulders and I say, it's possible. Like the explanation makes sense rationally and scientifically, therefore one has to keep an open mind. All I can tell you about these things is that I have tried to look with an engineering mind onto these things, and many things say you just have to keep an open mind because there is always a probability that something of these things is right. <clears throat> it is considered, therefore, that this was somewhere in the north when uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, they even have the theory, which unfortunately was taken over by the Nazis, because the German Nazis were great believers in this Aryan theory. They felt that if they were German and they had blue eyes and uh, if they were blonde, then they could ask for some legitimacy of continuing the Aryans of 20,000 years ago. And uh, because of this, they started the whole mythology of revival of the Aryan age, but uh, this was happening not in Satya Yuga, but in Kali Yuga, in which we are. So, of course, things flunked miserably. Uh, and because of this, they used a lot of these names. Like, for example, there is a city high up in Greenland, which technically belongs to Denmark. So, therefore, it's part of this 
Aryan uh, zone, as they think, and which was called Thule, because the Scandinavians called this, in their mythology, they called this northern certain Thule. Um, generally, uh, metaphysicians like René Guénon and Ananda Kumaraswamy and Julius Evola, like great minds of the 20th century in metaphysics, they claim that the only way to explain these dominant civilizations of each yuga is to simply say that they were one way or another associated to Shambhala. Shambhala, which are the invisible planetary masters, the great spirits of this planet, they create a channel of communication with a favorite area according to some considerations which are too big to start analyzing now. And each one of these major civilizations was having some guidance, some connection with Shambhala. And therefore it appears that Shambhala had a crossing point. Shambhala had an outpost somewhere in the far north where none of the common mortals on the face of this earth could reach because it was beyond Boreas, it was beyond the permanent ice, so you really had to be stubborn to get far there. And in Hyperborea, uh, Hyperboreans were not only wise and long-lived and everything, they were in connection with Shambhala. Maybe some of them were visitors from Shambhala and all that. That's why... Um, that is what we know about the Golden Age. Spiritually, the Vedic texts say, imagine a table, or actually they use a metaphor a bit more colorful. They say, imagine a cow. And they say that cow is dharma, which means righteousness. That, karma, that cow is the rule of the universe, is, is the order of the universe, is how things should be. And they say in Satya Yuga, the cow of dharma stands in a stable way, on all the four legs. Like Satya Yuga has got four points out of four, so to speak. And thus, in Satya Yuga, the number of people is limited, but those people are extremely spiritual, moral, ethical, sattvic, and all that. And the Dharma is respected fully. Then, the second of them is called by the Hindus... Treta Yuga, coming from the number three, because if the first was on four, the second one goes down to three. The numbers three, two, and one come from a primitive game of dice, which is mentioned even in Mahabharata, where people were throwing dice, and uh, you couldn't get worse than one. Every time when you threw one, you lost, because nobody can throw less than you. And therefore... Uh, in the game of dice, the lower in that game of dice, the lower you get, the worse it gets for you. So four was pretty good. It was four out of four. But then you get to three. So three is like humanity has gone to 75% capacity. And this is not the golden age. This is the silver age of humanity. This silver age is supposed to have lasted until the sinking of Atlantis. The northern center from Hyperborea moved down temporarily through Ireland. Ireland is specifically mentioned as a stopover of this civilization, and then it moved to the middle of the Atlantic, or wherever that was, to Atlantis. Therefore, if the white race 
was dominant in Hyperborea, the red race was dominant, like the ancestors of the Native Americans of today, this was dominant in Atlantis. And Atlanteans developed and developed their kind of civilization for about 6,000 years. And in the Silver Age, people have declined spiritually. It was the Dharma was only 75%. People were living less. People were less spiritual. Already traces of war, ego, imperialism, and other things had started appearing. We are, for example, told by Plato who is one of the Greek philosophers who quotes the famous myth of Atlantis, that the Atlanteans, towards the end of their rule, they started becoming slave masters, they started taking tribute and becoming transforming into dominions. All the nations around them, by which we mean North America, South America, Northwestern Africa, and Southwestern Europe, like all the areas around, and they were basically running the show. And uh, Edgar Casey claims that they did this by ch- channeling the solar power, that they had a great technology of collecting solar energy, so they could have almost endless amounts of energy, and so on and so forth, until, says Plato in his own words, not with his words, but in his own words, the karma, the negative karma created by these people became so much that eventually one day, Atlantis went down. Until today, we don't know if Atlantis existed, where and how, and how it went down. Um, For example, some people say that it may have been a major comet impact or something, but still we don't have enough points. I think the closest came to this, a famous astronomer, Charles Hapgood, quoted by... um, this Times Magazine fingerprints, Graham Hancock, a great journalist who wrote a book on it, and this was also the belief of Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein seconded this theory. He thought that that was the most scientific way to explain, by which they basically explained that periodically, every 12,000 years or so, there is a major shift in the crust of the Earth. Imagine the Earth as being an orange, and on top of that orange, there is 60 kilometers of the shell of the orange, of the peel of the orange, only the difference being that the peel is attached to the orange, but the actual earth peel is floating on magma, which is fluid. So imagine the peel of an orange dissociated from the orange, and the orange can stay and spin because it has its momentum, and suddenly the crust can shift, can simply slide along the orange in any position, you know, like not being attached to it firmly, And that would happen because of the tectonic masses moving out of balance, some mountains growing too much and something going down, too much ice on the polar uh, shelves and so on. Different explanations are given why, but there exists a theory pretty disturbing in science that about every 12, 13,000 years we're getting a major shift And therefore, Charles Hapgood said, actually, Atlantis didn't sink. It seemed like it sank, but it went to the South Pole, and it's Antarctica. So therefore, Atlantis still exists, but it's under ice. And when it will come back, then the ice will melt, and you will find the buildings of Atlantis under the melting ice. And he explains this. He says that's why in Russia, in Siberia, you find mammoths 
who are eating tropical food because we see the plants in their stomach and in their mouth, and they still have unchewed tropical food in their mouth. Like they froze in a matter of about 10 minutes. That freezing, he simply says, those mammoths were living near the equator, and they found themselves in Siberia, brusquely. And then they froze, simply, suddenly. And therefore, it's like the earth moves, and this produces serious disruptions in the history of the earth, and he claims that the Sphinx of Egypt and the pyramids partly are pointing exactly to that. They are megalithic monuments created by the followers of Atlantis to call the attention of the later people who can read those signs. Be careful that we have been here and disappeared without a trace and the whole planet went back to Stone Age because a cataclysm which cannot be controlled by humanity comes and wipes out everything. Uh, if Atlantis went down because of the negative karma and if many of these things are true or not, we don't know. Clearly, like some of us know these things through clairvoyance, but clairvoyance is not a proof in itself. Edgar Cayce, through clairvoyance, said quite a few things about Atlantis, and he was not the only one. Lopsang Rampa, who was a controversial pseudo-Tibetan Lama, and others, they have spoken things. Miss Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, who was a clairvoyant in many ways, Others and others, Lidbitter, Ani Bezan, people had reputation of honest clairvoyance. They did say various things. So the second yuga ended approximately 13,000, 12,000, 13,000 years ago by a very cataclysmic event which may have affected the whole world or just Atlantis in itself. And then we started the second, the third of them, which is called Dvapara Yuga. Dvapara Yuga comes from two in Sanskrit, and lets, it's even worse, and this is what the Greeks have called the Bronze Age. In the Bronze Age, the cow of Dharma cannot really stand properly because it's only on two legs already, and it can't really stand on two legs. And this simply says the Dharma has seriously gone down. The Mahabharata of India purports to show things which happened about this time, Treta Yuga, Dvapara Yuga, that Krishna came and guided the five brothers called the Pandavas against Duryodhana and his brothers. He guided them uh, somewhere at the change of these Yugas. There was a big upheaval and humanity went into pretty much trouble. And it continued, and it continued, you guessed, until about 6,000 years ago. The landmark of that is, of course, the flood of Noah. It is considered that when humanity stepped from Dvapara Yuga to Kali Yuga, again there was some big bump on the road, at least in some parts of this planet, and that bump on the road is exists in so many traditions. I've seen studies about the flood that the people from South America speak about the gigantic flood which happened thousands of years ago. People from the aboriginals of Australia have theories or they have legends about that. And the list could continue. Like wildly different parts of the earth, they speak about a major flood, which if you take it scientifically, it's like what? Even if all the ice from the poles is melting, the water won't get up more than 60 meters. So there are many countries and many areas where people won't feel any difference because 60 meters will affect only the coastal areas and the lowlands. But 
Most of the countries have their inhabitations at more than 60 meters altitude, and therefore it won't matter. Like they, For them it will be almost the same. And that's why uh, many people say, how could there have been a flood? There is not enough water on earth to produce a flood and all that. I'm going to leave that. It's not uh, the time to go there now. But remember that the great metaphysicians say the event which marked the crossing from the third called Vapara Yuga, the Bronze Age to the fourth, is corresponding to the flood of Noah. And uh, we are given in the Bible an exact exemplification of this, that humanity had gone really bad. Human beings were crap. On top of it, there were the degenerate giants from your that were not quality anymore. They, were, they had become terrible creatures. And as it says in the Bible, God simply said, enough is enough. It's like it's time for a brave new world. So we wipe the slate clean and we just have Noah starting the new games. And therefore, um, the idea was very clear that one old world is over and a new world is starting. And that new world, at least to in a certain extent, it's supposed to be better. Like Noah was a good guy. Noah was a prophet with God. He was a man of Dharma. He was a man of righteousness. Like he lived according to some religious precept. And that's when it would have started. Now, um, the last age is called Kali Yuga. And that requires one first mentioning. Especially in a tantric school like Agama, uh, many people when they hear Kali Yuga, they say it's the age of Kali. But actually in Sanskrit, the Kali from the name of the goddess is written with a long A and a long I. So it's Kali. And the Kali is a short name, is short A and short I. And for Farangs it might not make a difference, but for Sanskritologists it's simply two different words which are close in pronunciation, but not quite the same. So it's not the same word. Kali is a word which was mentioned to mean like bad luck. You are going to say Kali brings bad luck? No, again, you are mixing up the words. It's Kali, the name from the game of dice, and Kali, which is the name of the ten cosmic powers. Some people would say, but Swami, is it a coincidence that those two names are so close to each other? Maybe there is a synchronicity of some sort, but remember that this is not the age of Kali, the goddess. This is the age of Kali, the worst throw at dice. It was four, three, two, one. The Dharma is acrobatically standing on one leg. The cow of Dharma is standing on one leg, which means it mostly doesn't. When Jesus comes, People crucify him. That's how much Dharma there is in Kali Yuga. When somebody comes and tells the truth, people get irritated and they stone them to death because people's egos and demonic instincts are so strong that people don't really want to hear the truth. And that's why Dharma is very problematic. And that's not since Jesus. That's in the last 6,000 years which pretty, pretty much means any kind of knowledge known by humanity, like the known human history starts with Sumer, Babylon, whatever else, 
about 6,000 years old. Before 6,000, 5,000, 6,000 years old, we're talking about prehistorical times. We're talking about Neolithic, Paleolithic, and other such ages where there is just speculative history. So, basically, uh, the last of them is called the Iron Age. Besides bronze, below bronze, it's iron, the Iron Age. It's interesting because history says that people were in the Bronze Age where they had bronze swords and stuff, and then they discovered the metallurgy of iron, and they started manufacturing weapons and stuff made of steel, made of iron. It's funny that that corresponds exactly with this old image of a Bronze Age, but like more valuable, more spiritual, more pure, still dirty compared with the previous ones, and the Iron Age, which is like rock bottom. The Iron Age is the winter of humanity. And by the standards of the populations in the Northern Hemisphere, who created this mythology, winter is the time when you stay locked in your house and look at the snowflakes through the window. And there is no time for farming, agriculture. There are no fresh fruits and vegetables. There's no comfort. You just stay covered with five blankets and wait for the winter to be over. And that would be Kali Yuga. Kali Yuga is described like the time when people are, as we are, the pygmies of Kali Yuga, small in life, small in spirituality, small in soul, dominated by selfishness. If you are curious, just search Mahanirvana Tantra, search Linga Purana or Vishnu Purana, and you are going to find there quotes about, there are at least 10 Indian texts which tell you how you identify Kali Yuga. And when you will read them, you are going to have goosebumps. First of all, because half of the definitions of those are real nasty stuff which is happening all over and which we take for granted. No, like... It says when the Brahmins are not spiritual anymore. It's enough to go to India to see how many Brahmins are assholes. And therefore you will know that Kali Yuga is upon us. You know, it's like it's, there's no doubt about it. And half of the things are, you know, it makes your jaw drop because it's a description of what's happening. And half of the things are things which we kind of, uh, you are going to read them with a giggle. Because there are things which happen, but which uh, most of you accept, more than accept. You are brainwashed with them, and you consider that they are okay. For example, Indian texts mention as a sign of Kali Yuga, the mixture of the races. Like when you have Asian people making children with European people, African people making children with North American people... Uh, the Vedic people didn't see it with a good eye. They say from this mixture of races, there results just chaos. They were very racistic. You're going to say, but Swami, you don't mean to tell us that you believe in such a thing. Either I believe or not, the fact that you consider it scandalous, it shows that something which was considered really bad in Vedic texts, now it's considered you know, like people consuming alcohol in public women behaving immorally out of their family. Hey, but we live in a liberated age, right? We live in sex and the city age. 
Yes, it's called Kali Yuga in India, and it simply means an age of profound immorality and decadence where people don't find the spiritual support to guide themselves by some principles, like to, to believe in some principles and in the name of those principles to govern your life, to sometimes sacrifice some things in the name of an ideal, in the name of something which is spiritual. No, it's like life is short, suck the marrow out of life. Live as juicy as possible right now. Wait a second, that's not what Milarepa thought. That's not what Ramakrishna thought. That's not what Jesus thought. But many modern people would say, fuck Milarepa and Jesus and Ramakrishna, because there's just a bunch of square-toed, old-fashioned, puritanic, right-wing, patriarchal jerks, and we don't want to hear about them. That's where the modern world has gone. And that's why... Uh, it's very difficult when you read uh, about Kali Yuga in various texts. It's a sweet, bitter pill because you may identify that you as individuals, you do have faith, you do have spirituality, you want to stand up and be sattvic and be of a higher frequency in your chakras. And at the same, there are some things by which we have been brainwashed for the last 50 or 100 years. And it's very difficult to get out of those, you know. Like even when you think you are out of the crowd, you still are with one foot in some stuff. And the question is, how far do we want to push our personal revolution? You know, like do we really want to be sattvic? Do we really want to go to Shambhala? When I do the Shambhala lectures, I tell to many people, if you would go to Shambhala, you might turn against Shambhala. Because Shambhala might have political beliefs or social beliefs which are very old-fashioned and strict. And then you are going to say, what? To go to Shambhala is like to live with the Talibans or something. You know, it's unacceptable. And that's why the modern world is gone on a slope because many people hope that we are going to get a new transition to Satya Yuga, which is the next logical step. But many people say, how is that transition going to happen softly? Because people are not going to softly go into Satya Yuga standards for anything in the world. All the demonic spirits that live today on earth are going to cling with their teeth and nails from their little pleasures and their little things, no? And uh, they're not going to, it's not going to be Satya Yuga so easily. Remember that when spiritual revolutions are done, revivals, they take a very high price. When Jesus came to the Western Hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere was surrounded by terrible things. The Gentiles of the Middle East were a bunch of primitive tribes, doing human sacrifices and other things. The Egyptians were decadent to the bone already a thousand years before Jesus, Moses had bitten the shit out of them and trashed them, showed them that the God was not with them, that the spirituality was lost, that there was no access there. The Greeks had gone really decadent in the Roman Empire, starting with Julius Caesar and until the last Roman emperor, 
historians told, tell us that there was not one Roman emperor except Marcus Aurelius, except Marcus Aurelius from Caesar to the last, I forgot his name, there was not one of them which was neurologically healthy. Like Julius Caesar suffered from epilepsy, which in the medicine of the time it was considered the sign of demonic possession. And that was the least, because Nero and Caligula and Messalina and all those, they were fucking schizophrenics. So when you have an empire that has the biggest military power of its time, which is ruled by schizophrenics and the likes of them, then you know in what kind of world we live. When disciples of Jesus came with the message of Jesus, Nero threw them to the lions and crucified them and burned them alive in the Colosseum. That was the answer of the Roman emperor to the proposal of Jesus for a brave new world. And that's why, uh, remember that every time when when an elevation of humanity is happening, that elevation of humanity costs blood. Like there were tens of thousands of people who died for Christ as martyrs. Tens of thousands. Women, children, elderly people. Tens of thousands. And then for the Western Hemisphere, for a thousand years, there was a lot of Christianity happening and the Roman thing dismantled and fell into pieces. And therefore, what I'm trying to say is uh, people contemplate the end of Kali Yuga, which is pretty close. We don't know how close. I'm going to come back to that in a second because there are no proper calculations for this. And therefore... Um, people contemplate the end of Kali Yuga but they don't realize what it involves Um, before I go there before I tell you this is of course um, the fact that there is a reason of existence of these Yugas and it's exactly like you have a school and the school is ascribed at different hours for different classes. Even here in Agama, you can have one class happening from 8 to 12, you have another event happening from 12 to 4, and you have another thing happening from 4 to 8. There are different times where different things are happening in the same place. The place is planet Earth, but at different historical times, different things are happening. Basically, metaphysicians tell us that different classes of spirits incarnate on the face of the earth. Like in Satya Yuga, the earth was reserved for about 150,000 high-level souls. Those were the PhD students of the planet earth. Those were the ones who were going for the highest things. Most of them were reaching samadhi. Most of them were enlightened. Most of them were working for higher and higher development. And the planet Earth was an elite place. Many people speculate, were there still cannibal pygmies in Africa and Amazonian tribes which lived in cannibalism? Maybe. Maybe at the same time. But it's like, we don't know anything about the lives of those people in those times. And apparently from the standpoint of Shambhala, it doesn't make any difference. The dominant theme on the planet Earth was this Hyperborean northern tradition then in the next 6,000 years 
it went into the Atlantis civilization, Treta Yuga, the Silver Age, which was nice in the beginning and it went bitter and bitter. I'm going to explain this in a, in a minute because here is the whole catch of it. And then lower spirits incarnated. For example, we are told by different clairvoyants and there are very disturbing archaeological evidences found in the Inca tombs from South America that the Atlanteans and uh, their, their satellites, their satellite settlements in North and South America and elsewhere, they were practicing cranioplasty. They were modifying the skull of the small babies to, to create a better race of human. They were doing a sort of a genetical improvement. And that improvement was done by compressing with a special metallic device, keeping the head of the small babies compressed so that the skull would grow up, not laterally, so it will become conical in shape. There are skeletons in Inca tombs which are like this. They are pointed here. They have like a Klu Klux Klan or like a Dalai Lama hat on top of their head, which is made of bone. Their skull is not round here. It's pointed. And this automatically, according to parapsychology, like in the pyramid effect, it produces a focusing of the energy up here in Sahasrara much more. And um, that was done to kind of help the human being, to take the regular DNA of the human being and produce improved performance or something like that. Of course, many people would frown their nose and say that sounds barbaric or something. It has never been demonstrated that it has been a torture of any kind. It was like done uh, in normal circumstances. Um, I could continue about this, but I'm just trying to tell to you that that was a different age with different things happening. There are many, many reminiscences. The list is much longer than this, but we can't go there. And then Atlantis went down and we went into Dvapara Yuga, and Dvapara Yuga, the Bronze Age, is even lower. That's where we have the, many of the myths and legends of humanity, many of the ancient myths, the works of Hercules and the likes of them. They are coming from this time, the civilization of the Amazons in the north of Africa, and many, many events told by the ancient Greek historians who say, we've heard from our forefathers, like somewhere in an immemorial time, thousands of years before, there is still a rumor about this and this and that. And then from Atlantis, the spiritual center came somewhere first related to Egypt, proof being the construction of the Sphinx and of the pyramids, which Egyptologists have pushed way back, like if you, we will, most of you have learned in school that the pyramids of Egypt are 5,000 years old. Today, there are many, many theories which demonstrate that they are about 12,000 years old, much older than we thought they were, and they were built, therefore, by the Atlantis survivors. So the spiritual center was somewhere there. There is a funny theory which says that the center of this thing existed in a small island the only island basically existing in the Black Sea, where the Greeks were still venerating some place there, which was called the White Island. Today, the Ukrainians, to whom this island belongs, they call it the Island of the Snakes. So it's a strange little place. And uh, so it existed somewhere in the Eastern European part and on the time zone of Egypt, Egypt, Eastern Europe. 
and then with the end of the Dvapara Yuga, it moved into the Himalayas. It moved north of Tibet in Xinjiang or whatever that area is called, somewhere between Tibet and Mongolia, somewhere in the Gobi Desert, somewhere there around, somewhere in that deserted area. Traditionally, it's considered that we had the last outpost of Shambhala. And therefore, consequently, the dominant spiritual inspiration of this planet went to Asia. That's why in Asia, in India, Tibet, China, you have so many, even Mongolia with their shamanism and others, you have so many of these religions being born precisely because of the vicinity of this spiritual center. So this spiritual center moved from north, Ireland, Atlantis, East Egypt, Black Sea, and further east, Himalayas. Uh, if you are asking why, we don't know the reasons for this movement, associating itself always with uh, some dominant civilization, with some dominant culture, also taking benefit of some privacy, so it should not be overwhelmed by different historical events, and so on and so forth. This is a very, very deep rabbit hole. If I start going down this rabbit hole, we don't finish it for tonight. So, of course, this gives us the idea that things are not happening randomly, that there is a sort of a divine plan, and these yugas follow naturally, and it's exactly like God, if you prefer this name, if you don't get disturbed by it, is like a farmer. And every farmer knows when it's spring, you do this. When it's summer, you do that. When it's winter, you do that and you don't do that. Therefore, exactly like this, the human civilization follows some patterns. If you study the history, you see that the flood of Noah is located about 6,000 years ago. It's very funny that all this information is right there under the surface, but we don't manage to spell it out exactly. Even a British journalist, a Times Magazine journalist called Graham Hancock, who wrote a few significant books about it, and one about this subject, which is called Fingerprints of the Gods. In Fingerprints of the Gods, he manages to see exactly all these Sphinx pyramids and so on. He finds out the star location, like for example, the three pyramids of Egypt. They are not aligned. The three big pyramids that survive they are actually at a funny position. They are not on a straight line, as you'd expect an architect to do. They are, and actually when you look from the airplane and you take a vertical satellite photo of them, you find out that they are at a very strange angle. And then when you try to identify if that corresponds to something in nature, it actually corresponds to the angle of the three stars from the belt of Orion, from the Orion constellation. There are three stars in the belt, exactly like the three pyramids. And they have exactly the same angle between them, but not now, 13,000 years ago. The angle which the three stars of Orion's belt had 13,000 years ago is exactly the angle topographically on the map between the three pyramids from Egypt. Therefore, there are some very disturbing facts there, like there's too many coincidences, even Graham Hancock, who starts to analyze this thing journalistically, he cannot find out an exact date. 
Like, you know, if we could manage that fall of Atlantis, that shifting of the crust of the earth, and then we say from there, we take 6,400 years forward, and another 6,400 years forward, and we find 12,800 years, and that's the next landmark, which is coming pretty soon. We have people who say it's coming in 20 years. There are Tibetan prophecies which say it's coming in 2,350-something Therefore, we won't catch it in this body, in this lifetime. But basically, everybody knows, by analyzing how many years have passed from the flood of Noah and all of that, uh, everybody knows that it's happening pretty soon. It might fall within our lifetime, it might not fall within our lifetime. And of course, it would make a huge difference if yes or no, but this information... It's exactly like Shambhala or God or Shiva or something has created a hypnosis over the planet, whispering in the astral world, you shall not find out. You shall not find You will not know. It's impossible for you to know. It's exactly like a hypnotist who tells to a person to forget the digit number seven. And people cannot say the number seven. When they count their fingers, they go one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, nine, ten, eleven. They find out that they have 11 fingers simply because they can't see 7. Exactly in the same way, the divine consciousness or somebody out there is saying to the humanity, you won't see things. This thing, you won't see it. It's a sort, why? Simply because God decided that it's better not to know or it's a sort of punishment of ignorance or something like this. And that's why I'm telling to you, there are a lot of, there is a BBC documentary which shows without any, it's BBC style, like very grounded type of documentary, which shows that actually there exists an 150 meter wooden ship, apparently, caught in ice about 2,000 and something meters high on a mountain, which is at the borderline between Turkey, Iraq and Armenia. Like, it's a 200 meter long boat. It's something gigantesque, which when the ice melts at its maximum level in the summer, in July, it can be seen. Sometimes when it's a really hot year, it even emerges. You can see pieces of wood. Guess why? Guess what? Although there is a BBC documentary about it, nobody has gone to pick up a single piece of wood of one kilo to come with it and to carbon date it. Because that's supposed to be the Ark of Noah. No? Like, why? We live in the 21st century and everybody wants to go to bungee jump in New Zealand and to trek the Kilimanjaro trek or whatever. Why not go to Turkey and find the Ark of Noah? That would be a much, much bigger adventure than anything else. Of course, BBC is telling us in those areas there are some Kurdish crazy tribes which haven't seen foreigners since 500 years, and they shoot on sight. Like, if you go there, you 90% will get shot. Sounds pretty absurd. I'm sure that if the Turkish army would be motivated, they would take 5,000 soldiers, and they will go and shoot all those tribes, and then open the road to the Ark of Noah. You know, like, it could be done if there is a will to it. But there isn't a will. There isn't a will... Because there is a bird floating in the causal world which whispers, sleep, sleep, sleep. You will not know about this. You will not know until it's too late. Like it will come as a total surprise. 
That's why there are many theories, but remember that I, as a yogi, I identify very clearly that here there is a blockage. I have done experiments in meditation in the astral world, in Akasha and others, and I have seen that there is very clearly... uh, I have very clearly seen that there exists a blockage concerning this. That's why um, here... There are many things to be said, but the timing is a little bit fuzzy. Also, I wanted to explain the diagram which I made there. Each yuga, the whole line from that corner to down here, is like a 26,000 year full yuga. And it's divided in four equal sectors, which are those Satya, Treta, Dvapara and Kali, as I wrote there. And as you can see, the idea is that humanity starts from a very lofty place... And it goes down. Why does humanity go down? This is what I have explained in other situations. This is what science today calls the concept of entropy. Most human beings on the face of this earth, if they are not directly inspired by the spirit, they start going decadent. That simply says, in this this universe, there there are two forces which... European metaphysicians in one of their systems, they have called fire and ice. The universe is ice. Whenever you find a boulder flowing through the universe, that boulder will be frozen, like all the comets and meteorites and so on. There is fire. The fire are the suns. But the suns, the stars, are the first form of existence and they are the old gods. Surya Deva and those like them, they are the first manifestations of the divine. They are the devas. And therefore, in the universe, there is a contrast between entropy, which is ice, which is cooling things down and killing them, and spirit, which is exploding like supernovas, and which is creating light. You All of you realize that we exist here and now because of the sun. If our sun goes bust, in 48 hours we're all dead. It's as simple as that. Like we can exist on this planet only because of the sun. Because in the center of our solar system, there is fire. If there is no fire, there is no life. Life goes dead. Exactly in the same way in the human being, there is the spirit, Purusha, which is our fire and which says, Who am I? Ho, oh, look, I found myself in a body made of flesh and blood. But who am I? My spirit is incarnated and it moves the flesh. As Peter of Damascus who said, although the flesh is passive, is unconscious, because it is enlivened by a spirit, it's going to do works of the spirit. Matter is going to become spiritual. Matter is doing karma yoga. Matter is doing meditation. Matter is spiritualized. And not for everybody. Because a lot of people are couch potatoes. They don't want to sit up and do karma yoga or meditation. Because the spirit is not strong enough in them. And that's why they live a life which is tamasic. Spiritually passive. Larval. Ignorant. Inferior. That's what I'm talking about. The metaphysics says that human beings, if they are not more than 51%, like a seesaw, If the dominant is not in the spirit, then they don't have enough power to stand up and look to heaven. 
and therefore they put their head down like an ox and they are telluric. They are just buried in matter, buried in earth. And therefore, spirituality says humanity is a mixture of prophets, seers, yogis, saints, enlightened beings, which are about one in a thousand, and 999 people which are like wagons. One which is locomotive, and 999 which are wagons. Which means spiritual people carry on their shoulders the passive ones. Spiritual people from time to time manage to give a positive example. Mahatma Gandhi comes and then he inspires millions of Indians to be non-violent. Try to imagine what the history of India would have been without Mahatma Gandhi. How terrible things could have gone. How much more death and terror there could have been there. Therefore, exactly as Mahatma Gandhi is a person that lifts humanity a little bit, and he carries on his shoulders 500 million ignorant, of course, not quite because there were enlightened beings living in India at that time, but just for the sake of it, is like one person. That's why the metaphysics is clear about this. Humanity, the 999 people in our story, they are anthropic. They are couch potatoes. They are born Christian or Jewish or something. And when they were children, they were being given a baptism or a bar mitzvah or something. And they were told something spiritual by their parents, by the community, by the priests. And then when they became 30 years old and 40 years old and 50 years old, they just became some couch potatoes, beasts, materialistic, creeps, demonic and everything. Because everybody goes skeptical and says, yeah, yeah, of course, the priests say. But the priests always say, but they are the greediest of all of us. And this and that. Like people have find it very difficult to live up to some standards and up to some spirituality. And that's why people decay. That's why humanity needs from time to time examples. And humanity needs a revival. Like even so, for example, Jesus did not come at a change of the yugas. Jesus didn't come together with Noah, and Jesus didn't come in the end of Kali Yuga. Jesus came somewhere 2,000-something years before the end of Kali Yuga. Jesus came at a time when Kali Yuga was bad already, really bad. No? And that's why a one like Jesus comes at such a time, you know, when it's so terrible. And then he gives a boost. Either you like Jesus or not, you'll have to admit that from a strictly spiritual standpoint, after Jesus, people were vegetarian, non-violent, celibate, sacrificed their lives out of martyrdom. They lived about a thousand years of religious fervor and so on, until the momentum given by Jesus started cooling down. Then the Pope in Rome, a thousand years later, said, I am the boss here. And things started becoming more and more institutional and less and less spiritual. And therefore, every time when there is a spiritual impulse, it's like we have a fresh start. Like a country is becoming bad. Then there comes a cataclysm and a war and this. And that country disappears. And instead of it, you have another country on another continent and this. And that's like a brave new world. Let's start again fresh. Usually when that start is coming, it's a little bit better than before. For example, in the Bible, Noah 
is not presented as a perfect man. He was a prophet of God and he is presented as 95% obedient. He had a few disobediences to God, even Noah. No? And the, but the world before Noah was something crap. It was something unbearably ugly. And therefore Noah, who starts a brave new world, he is not like Jesus. He is not like Milarepa. But he is good. For his time is good. So that's why, that's why I made that zigzag line. That uh, a yuga goes under plan. And then when the yuga changes, God gives also a boost and says, let's start fresh. It's exactly like a yoga hall gets dusty. And even if we ask you, please don't bring food, don't make misery in the yoga hall. Still, when you go, everybody will see dirt and little things on the floor. And that's why when you go and a new class has to come in, meanwhile, it would be preferable that the sweepers team should come and clean again the hall. That's exactly what the yuga transitions is. It's when God sweeps the planet Earth. It's like, enough with this. Let's take their garbage out and let's get a fresh start. Unfortunately, just as the example of Atlantis and the example of the flood of Noah suggests, this sweeping of the table clean is usually happening in catastrophic ways. Because there is no way to determine people in a civilized way to change and to get there. There is no way of resorting to the goodwill. Like how would you have changed the Romans, the selfish Romans of the Roman Empire, spoiled, who are killing 40,000 nightingales to eat a delicate dish made of nightingale tongue? How would you determine snobbish jerks like that to become modest Christians? Only by 60,000 people dying in the Colosseum and with a lot of blood, a lot of martyrdom would produce a mutation, will pay a karmic price which will help that 60,000 people died so that 6 million people could change their lives. You are going to say that's not very elegant. No, the planet Earth unfortunately is not very elegant. We live in a planet which is a jungle which is ugly. We live in a place where the lions are tearing apart the gazelles and the baboons do the same and the big fish is eating the small fish and a lot of ugly things are happening. And uh, this is not a planet which is a paradise. It's a planet where a pretty low-level evolution happens. It's not the lowest tattva because we are a water planet. It would be even worse if we were an earth planet. Then you would see something even worse than this. But point being that uh, not elegant things are happening and that's why there is nothing which the divine consciousness says that you can do such as perform some uh, Jedi things on the Roman Empire and suddenly all the Romans day after day will start becoming more compassionate, more merciful, more loving and uh, there will not be need for anything horrible. That thing has not happened in the history of mankind. Once, just once, it is mentioned in, Bi in the Bible. The Jews did that. I think the prophet Josea or one of those, one of the old prophets announced to the local Jewish king a huge cataclysm. He said, the patience of God has run short and you're going to get it. I've been told by God 
that this is happening. And the king, for a difference, was a humble and smart man. And he said, Josea, what do we do about this? And Josea said, you have to fast, you have to do this, you have to do that. The whole city has to come out in procession, dressed in sack and so on, and go in the fields and pray to God. You have to make a sacrifice to not to do this, not to do that. Like he gave them a tapas. And guess what? The Jews did it. And nothing bad happened. You can say Josea was wrong. But you can say it's the only example in history of a major divine punishment and tragedy avoided because people raised to the challenge and they believed and they simply said, oops, it's better not to test this one. It's better safe than sorry. So let's do something about this one. But for the rest, human beings never take heed of what's going to happen. No, people are crying about global warming, this pollution, this, that. What, does anybody stop driving their motorbike one kilometer less per day because it's a global warming? Like when you have personal private interests, you step over dead bodies. It doesn't matter. You know, you before everyone else, and that's the end of it. Nobody refrains from anything. No, if anybody would tell you stop downloading things from the internet because it spends energy and it increases your carbon footprint, everybody will answer like this. Like, it's not possible to download less from the internet. But we are going into disaster. Yes, we're going into disaster. Just don't tell me to use the internet less. There's no way I'm going to do that. And if people say, you are asking me to use the internet less, and then the jerks from Korea are going to do it two times more, it is not even useful if we do it less, because other people are going to step forward and do it more. Therefore, it's useless. And therefore, everybody keeps going like lemmings, like sheep to the slaughterhouse. They keep going forward, and nothing is averted. It's very difficult to avert anything in this way with this kind of consciousness of humanity. The point being, unfortunately, we are told by history that every change of the yuga is like a bump on the road, and there is a certain amount of divine wrath, a certain amount of divine justice to it, a sort of a bit of divine regression and uh, <clears throat> settling of accounts. And that's why it's important for us also to think about the coming one. If it's going to be during your lifetimes, don't be so happy. Because look at those little jerks between Satya and Treta, between Treta and Dvapara, between Dvapara and Kali. And then go one step further and look at the number five, which is when you finish Kali, starting Satya again. That's a big one. It's way bigger than the others. If the previous one was the flood of Noah and the second previous one was the sinking of Atlantis, what could this big one coming be? Doesn't sound elegant, doesn't sound nice, because as I said, people won't give up sex and the city too easily. And then a comet or something might make them do it. And uh, it's simply because class is over, get out of here. There's nothing else to it. There is no anger or punishment. It's simply the fact that the next Satya Yuga has to be a very clean, amazing place. And the PhD students have to come to have their divine lives here on the face of this earth. So the divine consciousness has to clean out 
how do you make the population of the earth get down from 7 billions to at least 1 billion? No? The politicians try to do this constantly. The politicians have envisaged wars, nuclear wars, epidemics, viruses which are man-made, and all sorts of things because people don't want to stop fucking and reproducing. When Indira Gandhi tried to tell to the Indian women that had two kids or three kids to sterilize them by force, like stop having kids for God's sake because we are a billion people and we die, they simply took her out of office. She was deposed immediately. Like she became very unpopular. Why? Because the Indian women who had three kids wanted to have 13. There is no reason to it. There is no intelligence to it. There is just instincts, animal instincts taken to a pathetic level. And that's why I'm saying um, this change of the yugas is a big subject of concern. If you'll catch it during this lifetime, it will be a big bump on the road. If you don't catch it, maybe it's better that you don't catch it. So do your spiritual practice, reach your graduation level, a consciousness on Anahata Chakra, and don't be part of what's going to happen, because there are many, many prophecies in the Oriental text. There is a prophecy made by the king of the world from Shambhala, quoted by some Tibetan texts. There is a prophecy made by Sundar Singh, the Christian saint of India. There is a prophecy made by Seraphim of Sarov, a Russian saint from the north of Russia. And others, I, I won't, but these are some of the biggies, some of the big people who went into amazing things. And uh, there is a positive optimistic thing which says, you know, like in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, after all those bitter times will pass, the devil will be tied with chains in the bottom of the hell and there will come a thousand years of happiness and light. Because it will be Satya Yuga again. But before that's going to happen, the question is who will make it to Satya Yuga and at what cost and all the other collateral things. That's why uh, this theory of the Yugas is uh, again very beautiful also because it tells us something. In different times of history, different things are happening. There is a deep philosophy, and I would like to conclude with this tonight. If, according to Indian metaphysics, we are in Kali Yuga, we are now living in the winter of mankind. If it's truly the end of Kali Yuga, then we are very, very low on that curve. We are almost to the lowest point possible on that curve, which simply says spirituality is very low at this time. And that simply says, to do spirituality in Kali Yuga is full of merit. It's an amazing thing. It's like you are like a diamond shining in the mud. When, when it's a room full of diamonds, when the floor is covered by 30 centimeters of diamonds, one more diamond or less won't make a big difference. But when the floor is covered with mud, a diamond makes a big difference in that mud. That's spirituality in Kali Yuga. That's also what the gurus of India tell us. Do not hope that spirituality will become overwhelming. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the founder of the transcendental meditation, the guru of the Beatles and so on, who passed away about 10 years ago, 
Maharishi Mahesh Yogi had a way of saying, he said, if people would do mantra meditation, at least 2% of the world population, like one person in 50 would do every day, honestly, their meditation. He considered meditation about 40 minutes per day. Then he said, we might have a soft apocalypse coming. Like that bump might be softened. Statistics show that much, much less than 2% of the population is doing regular spiritual practice. We are not talking about people who are going to the mosque or to the church and who are just a bunch of believers, fanatic and so on, and actually their spiritual practice is basically zero. We are talking about people who actually do, do concretely spiritual practice. (coughs) Minutes and hours every day. The number of those people is less than one person in a thousand. Krishna, 3,500 years ago, said that one person in a thousand does it. But Krishna was not in Kali Yuga. Krishna was before Kali Yuga. Therefore, in Kali Yuga it's worse than in the time of Krishna. (coughs) And that simply says... Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was an optimist when he said, if only 2% of the world, they don't. So what's the alternative? The alternative is the nasty one. And that's why, please know, because if you would have lived a thousand years ago in India, it would have been considered an honor that you do spiritual practice. And the society would have approved you, admired you, and supported you. Today, especially in the West and in the modern cultures, like still the Buddhist monks, they get some sympathy and support here in Thailand because it's a pretty old-fashioned society. But if you live in a Western country and you are a priest or a monk or something, you have to hide. I have known priests who simply said, I can't go dressed in my robe because people spit on me on the street and they say insulting words, and so on. No, this was happening in Copenhagen, a very tolerant, laid-back, cool place. And still, people of religion, they couldn't even show it on the street. So, so twisted the people have become. And therefore, this, is, this information is good for you to understand that spirituality in some times and in some places, it's praised and supported, and in some places and in sometimes it's not praised and not supported. And Kali Yuga is definitely a time where spirituality is not very favored. That's why all of you who wish to do spirituality, you've got an extra enemy. It's not only the enemy in your head, which simply says, well, I have to choose, I have to make some choices, and I'm tempted by this, and I'm tempted by that, and of course I want to do some spirituality, But I don't know, I'm very split between different temptations. Not only that you have to fight with your own nature, but at the same time you have to fight with all the rest of the world. Like in the moment in Kali Yuga, when you become a spiritualist, you are not like a Brahmin at the time of Krishna, of Mahabharata. You are becoming a weirdo, a marginalized person, a person who is considered a loser, a cheater, something. And because of this, it's even worse. Every, spir- every true spiritual person, in a certain way in Kali Yuga, 
they find themselves against the world. Against the world. Remember that Francis of Assisi was a Catholic Italian saint in ultra-Catholic Italy in the medieval times. Like You can't imagine a greater religious fanaticism than then. And one of the disciples of Francis was murdered and he himself was tortured. And all he wanted was to live in poverty. He wanted to live according to the word of Jesus to demonstrate that human beings can live at the mercy of God and they don't need to amass riches. Even this simple thing provoked the Italian Catholic Christian community so much that they killed one man and they tortured Francis of Assisi because of daring to be so much in their faces for provoking and showing how miserable actually they were by comparison. That's what's happening in Kali Yuga. When we have saints, we persecute them and a lot of negativity is happening. I could give you example over example. In some places more, in some places less. For example, in medieval Tibet, the society was very religious and it was a little bit of a Satya Yuga in Tibet in the 15th century. And because of that, Spiritual practitioners were more supported for a period of time. But then, of course, the Chinese came and the paradise was over. So it lasted for a while, just in a certain space, in a certain location. But the general rule is this. That's why every metaphysician could have told you a hundred years ago, Tibet will not resist. No spiritual place will resist because it makes a discordant note with what's happening in the rest. Therefore, Kali Yuga is the winter of humanity. And that's why many, many things which we have in, to do in Kali Yuga, they are not mass phenomena. Spirituality is not a mass phenomenon in Kali Yuga. Non-spirituality is a mass phenomenon in Kali Yuga. That's why spiritualists, they are like partisans hiding in the forest. Spiritualists are like guerrilla fighters who are coming and trying to make a point, give an example. But to create spirituality in Kali Yuga is like trying to cultivate a rose in the middle of the winter. Can you cultivate a rose in the middle of the winter? Yes, if you create a very protected environment, such as a glass house or a greenhouse. And if that greenhouse gets broken, then the cold will come inside and the rose will die. Therefore, it's a very, very delicate and vulnerable environment. And thus, please remember that that's the reason given by the gurus of India and Tibet, why spirituality is so vulnerable and so rare. You hear about things like, okay, all the spiritual leaders, Allah, popes and lamas and so on, they are a joke from a spiritual standpoint. Yes, that's how it is in Kali Yuga. Many Indian gurus in the 20th century, they have behaved bizarre and some of them were very disappointing. Yes, because this is how the gurus of Kali Yuga are. That's probably a cat. So,
understanding Kali Yuga, understanding the Yugas, is a big process. Study a little bit more. Ask me questions in the Q&A sessions if there is something which interests you more specifically. I gave you a little outcome to see that this story of the Yugas is quite clearly outlined. And of course, there are subdivisions, smaller cycles, which concern us practically, directly, and at the same time, the big yugas, they give us a context, they give us a background. According to the gurus of India and Tibet, most of them, we are in Kali Yuga, and more than that, we are in the end of Kali Yuga. That's why when Jesus spoke, he said at one place, he referred to what's happening, and he said, this is a decision or something which is happening because of the prince of this world, by which he meant the devil. So Jesus said, we are deep in Kali Yuga, and the ruling force is demonic. People are actually temporarily ruled rather by demonic forces than by divine forces. Because if you look like this, you have people who pretend, for example, to be spiritual and Christian. Why not like George W. Bush? And then you have people who also pretend to be spiritual, like, let's say, the Ayatollah, whatever his name is, of Iran. If you go to BBC, the Ayatollah of Iran is a monster, and George W. Bush is a decent citizen who may have done some political errors, but overall, he is a wasp. He's a white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, decent person for BBC standards. It would be interesting to find out how it goes for Shambhala. Who does Shambhala consider to be closer to God and closer to Dharma? That's why I'm saying that sometimes Kali Yuga twists the minds of people very bad. And uh, there was a Polish thinker called Stanislaw Jerzy Lek, or whatever the pronunciation is, because I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. And Stanislaw Jerzy Lek, he gave a one, uh, he has a book of aphorisms. And one of those aphorisms is brilliant. Because it says, in hell, the good guy is the devil. Simply because in hell, the devil is the boss. And therefore, in hell, the values are exactly upside down. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, but the world of today, the end of Kali Yuga, is a bit of a hell. So those of you who will go deep in spirituality... You might find that some point, some of your values will turn upside down and you'll be in a state of shock. Because many things that you thought that they were decent or okay, they're actually profoundly not decent and not okay. And some things which you thought that they were like wild or extreme or something, they are the real thing. That's why spirituality, especially traditional spirituality like this, has a very different perspective on things, And then next time when you are going to say the Lord's Prayer as given by Jesus, 
And when you are going to pray and say, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you might get pale in your face because the will of God might be very, very strict and different from what's happening today in the society. And you might find out that many things that we do on a daily basis are actually considered to be unacceptable. And thus, it's very important to zoom the camera and to look at this story of the yugas and to try to understand things which are happening in the history of planet Earth because um, we live in very deluded times. I was talking to one of my friends who is a great yogi and he said, you know, generation after generation, when I get pupils in yoga, I see people who are less and less gifted for yoga. Like every generation, every 10 years, there seems to be a one notch decrease in like, like he said, I'm doing yoga like with some kindergarten retarded people, you know. It's like I can't do anything really serious or profound, you know. Because most of these people are like autistic retards or something, you know. It's like you can't really get to them properly because they are brainwashed, their DNA is damaged, they are full of vaccines and antibiotica from their parents and God knows where. And it's like see, I'm in a world of zombies and I'm trying to teach them about Ramakrishna. You know, it's like almost... It's becoming a caricature of this. That's why, please be aware, those of you who go in spirituality, you are swimming against the stream. You are... That's why yoga has become gymnastics. Because the people who wanted to make yoga into fitness, they didn't want to swim against the stream. They didn't want to keep the flag up. They didn't want to keep the flame. They preferred to go for the compromise. They preferred to flow on the path of minimal resistance. They preferred to give up because to keep the flag up, to keep the principles up, it costs a lot. And it basically means that often you have to swim against the stream. So that's the story about, this is the theory of the yugas. There will be much more to say, but it's getting late. With pleasure, I will answer to questions in Q&As or other times. If you have any needs for clarification, like other lectures or a continuation or something, please give to the registration people. There is a mailbox out there, which is for your requests, and I can come back to this. I wanted to do this in the beginning of the season, because we often in the lectures and so on, we speak about Kali Yuga, this, that, and many people, especially those of you who are new to yoga, you don't know what we are talking about and what is the story of these yugas and the flow of time as the yogis and not only the yogis have seen it. Enough for tonight. Let us stop here. Namaste to all of you. <coughs> there may be that I have one more um, satsang on one of these urgent subjects of the beginning of the season, after which I'll turn back to the analysis of Geranda Samhita, which I started uh, last season, and I'll continue very soon in this season. Enough for tonight.